Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Today's episode is another installment in our Emerging Scholar series and features a discussion with Dr. Gregory Bruno, Assistant Professor in English at Kingsborough Community College in the City University of New York. Today is September 14th, 2020. Before we get into a discussion with Dr. Bruno, I want to direct your attention to a couple of CFPs that might work well for your research. Doctors Lisa Blankenship and Eric Leake proposed the edited collection Empathy and the Other, Difference, Connection, and the Teaching of Writing from the CFP, quote, How do we teach writing an ethical rhetorical engagement within the polarization of our cultural moment? What role can empathy play in our classrooms, especially as we work toward greater racial and social justice amid movements such as Black Lives Matter and Hashtag Me Too? This collection raises these questions, particularly the question of how empathy plays out in our writing classrooms, and particularly in our current cultural landscape. Empathy presents possibilities, limitations, and questions that are central to immediate and ongoing concerns in writing pedagogy. If you would like to submit to this CFP, send a 250-word proposal and a 50-word bio with the subject line Teaching Empathy Proposal to empathyandwriting at gmail.com by November 30th. Another CFP comes from Drs. Jen Fishman, Romeo Garcia and Lauren Rosenberg called Community Listening, Stories So Far, and Possibilities of New Stories, which, quote, expands the idea of community listening, bringing particular attention to it as a communicative practice. Questions to consider from the CFP include, quote, how is listening embedded within and created through community? What are the possibilities and dangers of singularity, like community versus communities? Can we do community listening historically? If you would like to submit to this CFP, send a 250-word proposal along with a brief 50-word bio to communitylisteningproject at gmail.com no later than October 15th. The big rhetorical podcast, Emerging Scholar series, features the work of graduate students and less seasoned scholars in rhetoric, composition, and technical communication discussing their life and their work. This unique series of episodes extends conversations within these areas to offer a glimpse of the future of the discipline. If you would like to be featured on the Emerging Scholar series, visit our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and fill out a form. Dr. Gregory Bruno is assistant professor in English at Kingsborough Community College in the City University of New York, where he serves as a specialist in first-year writing studies. He designs and teaches co-enrolled exchange program courses at correctional facilities in the greater New York City area. His current research emphasizes a dialogical approach to pedagogy in prison, both as a means of establishing a classroom approach rooted in meaningful exchange, as well as a way of reconceptualizing the manner in which we discuss such programs' impact and effectiveness. Right, accepting 
uh, all students, open access, right, open open admissions, but really kind of having these internal hurdles that were um, really making the experiences quite problematic. So it was sort of like you had access to the building, but not really to the institution, right? So that's something that I was very interested in was sort of like, yeah, you can come, but you have to fill out this complicated FAFSA application. You know, you need to have a social security number. Uh, you need to have, you know, all of these sort of complicated political hurdles that you have to maneuver your way through. Dr. Bruno earned his doctorate in English education from Teachers College, Columbia University, in 2019. Outside of the profession, Greg enjoys rate training, running, and playing guitar. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gregory Bruno. What's your name, uh, your uh, institution, and your title, and your role there? Yeah, so uh, my name is Greg Bruno, and I'm assistant professor of English at Kingsborough Community College, which is part of the City University of New York. Uh, we're in South Brooklyn, so Outer Borough Community College. Beautiful campus, most beautiful campus I've ever seen. You know, right on a peninsula, water on all ends. People don't realize we have beaches and water in New York City, but we do. So, uh yeah, I love it there. How long have you been in your role there at Kingsborough? So this is actually my second semester at Kingsborough. I was hired full time uh, over the summer, but I've been within CUNY for six years uh, at a number of schools. So Queens College, Borough Manhattan Community College, and I've done a lot of work with the uh, CUNY Research Foundation as well. So I've been a part of CUNY for the better part of a decade, uh, Kingsborough specifically for, you know, six months. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, where'd you get your bachelor's degree at? So I started out at a community college and um, I started at Suffolk County Community College and then transferred to um, St. Joseph's College. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting story because, you know, I didn't graduate from a traditional high school. So when I went to community college, it was kind of a you know, sort of a last ditch effort to salvage some degree of academic <laughs> integrity or career or future. And uh, I dropped out three times. So uh, before fully making it through the community college system and um, transferred to St. Joseph's College for no other reason than it was walking distance from where I was living at the time and didn't have a car. So there wasn't a whole lot of uh, forethought or foresight into any of those decisions. But um, yeah, I majored in English there at St. Joseph's, thought I wanted to be a high school teacher, sat through literally half of one a seminar on teaching and walked out at the break because I just couldn't possibly imagine teaching English. So continued just with the uh, the English major and not the teaching bit. And lo and behold, find myself <laughs> teaching, you know, English without any uh, high school certification or DOE certification or anything like that, uh, you know, 10 years later. Okay. So what do you mean when you say you graduated from a non-traditional high school? And keep in mind, this is coming from a person who had the quintessential middle-class American high school experience. 
Yeah. So uh, where I graduated high school from is what's commonly referred to as an opportunity school. So it's sort of the last place that a lot of people will land after any number of life events places them there. So for me, it was just a lot of absences and, you know, just sort of a general disinterest in school paired with some environmental circumstances. But yeah, so that so so yeah, so that was that was where I went to high school and there wasn't a lot of mobility between that school and post-secondary institutions. It was associated with a vocational program um where a lot of people would kind of make that leap, you know, just sort of literally turn the hall, you know, go around the corner. So it was close in sort of uh deterministic ways of thinking, right? That it was you were predestined for these vocational programs, but it was also close physically, right? It was part of the same building. So architecturally speaking, there's something kind of interesting about that. But but yeah, that's where I, that's where I uh, earned my uh, primary schooling. What pushed you to English at St. Joseph College? Or was that something that you had before then that you kind of captured at St. Joseph's, your interest yeah. in English? Yeah. So I think I always erred more towards the humanities. I don't think I could have used that language at the age of 17 or 18 to explain it that way. I was a musician. Still, I'm a musician. So I always kind of gravitated more towards sort of creative, you know, bits in that sense. But, you know, sort of traditional story, right? I had a professor at community college who taught English and was really one of the few people who get me to stay in the class, you know, and uh, got some positive feedback, um, realized that writing music was sort of transferable to writing with language. And that was it, you know, started reading. And, you know, I hate to say I fell in love with literature because it's not entirely accurate, but I fell in love with writing, you know, I think is really what it was. And studying literature was a way to write more you know, and get feedback on writing and to be around writing and to sort of model my writing um, and just to talk about writing, you know, and I think that's kind of what uh, what really drew me in. Did you uh, expect to, to move on pretty rapidly from the bachelor's degree and move to getting the master's degree? You know, I, uh, I made some friends when I was in my bachelor's degree uh, at St. Joe's, and they were all going straight through. And, you know, they, they had heard about an opportunity at SUNY New Paltz where you could uh, serve as a teaching assistant. And if you serve as a teaching assistant, your tuition was covered. So that sounded pretty good to me, you know, to uh, have my tuition covered, to get some professional experience, you know, if not in teaching, um, in writing, you know, it was associated with writing, which is what I was really interested in. I still wasn't sold on teaching yet. And, you know, living in one of the most beautiful places in the world, hanging out in the mountains, going hiking every weekend sounded pretty good. So, you know, I was still not quite sold on the academic bit. I was more sold on the sort of life experience bit. And yeah, when I got to New Paltz, um, I don't know if I'm drifting too far from your question here, but when I got to New Paltz, if you were a teaching assistant, you had to take a course called Modern Theories of Writing, 
which is sort of probably in your wheelhouse, like very kind of ret comp, you know, you're starting off with quintillion and, you know, all that kind of stuff and moving all the way up to, you know, guys like Mike Rose and Paulo Freire and Bell Hooks and, and that kind of stuff. And that captured my imagination in a way that school hadn't really before. You know, when I was when I was coming into New Paltz, I had been actually strangely really into interested in, in Jack London and but not like the you know kind of wilderness stories it was he's got all these great social novels right i think the library of america has a really beautiful bound collection of you know mm. people deem the abyss and the iron heel and these are these really great kind of like socialist novels mm. that i was really interested in writing about and when i got into that modern theories of writing class that quickly became or jack london quickly became sort of like this hobby <laughs> Right. And I was really suddenly dedicated to uh, the first thing I read that captured my imagination was the Bartholomew Elbow debates. Right. You know, writing with teachers versus venting the university. Right. Like that sort of debate about what role do teachers have in writing? And me coming from this kind of anarchistic background was sort of very curious about this question. So that's where it really kind of that's what I think where the switch happened. You graduated with your master's degree in 2014. Yes. What happened next? So as anybody with a master's degree in literature can tell you, I couldn't find a job. So I called some of my friends from high school to get a job in an auto shop. And, you know, I graduated, you know, uh, with my master's degree and had to make these phone calls. Hey, can you get me a job in a shop? And I worked in a shop for... Uh, about four or five months. And what kind of shop? Auto shop. So, auto shop. Yeah. What kind of things yeah. did you do? Uh, well, what I was doing, actually, funny you ask. I was trying to avoid this question, but but uh, uh, no, but I appreciate you asking. It puts me into an interesting, uh, it puts us into an interesting conversation. So I didn't have any technical qualifications at that point, right? Uh, I only had this master's degree in literature. So uh, I didn't have the auto tech qualifications and credentials that all of my friends had. So all I could do was drive. So really what I did was I was essentially a driver who, you know, moved cars all over the tri-state area from Connecticut to New Jersey to New York, the city out to Long Island, upstate New York, and uh, did minor repairs that didn't require any you know, technical certification that would, you know, possibly get the place in trouble. But uh, yeah, it was kind of this funny moment where I had this advanced academic qualification, <laughs> couldn't find a job and didn't have the technical credentials to work, uh, uh, you know, uh, an upper level position in the auto shop. So I did that for four or five months. And uh, right after that, I got picked up actually both at Suffolk County Community College and St. Joseph's College as an adjunct. And that's when I started the adjunct thing, you know, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. Yes. I call when I did it, I called it the adjunct circuit because I yes. was going to so many different univers yes. or universities and colleges. Yeah. How did you fall into rhetoric and composition? How did you get into working in this discipline? Yeah. So that goes right back to that modern theories of writing course, right, which was sort of this mandatory course for anybody that was going to serve as a teaching assistant at New Paltz. And, uh, you know, for me, it, 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 it worked in exactly the sense that it was designed to work, right? It was this crash course. I mean, 
you know, I remember the final exam for that course was, you know, mind melting, right? It was everything from Socrates, Quintilian, Plato, all the way up to, you know, like I said, Bartholomew Elbow. It was a bit on postmodern theory and, you know, we did graph and we did, mm -hmm. um, got into the sort of critical pedagogy, uh, Freire, Shore. Uh, I think we read a little bit of Giroux. And for me, what really kind of sealed the deal for me was Mike Rose, right? You know, makes a lot of sense coming from a sort of like, you know, sling and wrenches and that whole kind of background. Right. Uh, reading Mike Rose, uh, remediation as social construct. Uh, I think it was Glinda Hull, Mike Rose, uh, Castellanos. I don't remember the, I'm sorry, I don't remember the rest of the authors, but it was a kind of group of people that wrote this great article about sort of you know, social construction of the way that we think about writing courses and read a little bit more about Mike Rose, of course, discovered blue collar brilliance, which is, you know, very near and dear to me and still is and lives on the boundary. And I think when those couple of texts started to swirl together, I was able to sort of link um, my, my background with the sort of political inclinations that I was interested in from the Jack London novels with the writing studies, right? I, I mean, I didn't know that this intersection existed, you know, and I think if you explained it to me, uh, even now I'd be confused, <laughs> right? But the relationship between those three parts clicked. And what I started to realize was that I was much more interested in teaching my first year writing classes at SUNY New Paltz than I was taking my graduate courses in literature, right? So I was taking this seminar in Joyce, which I had been very excited about because, you know, what 22-year-old guy isn't excited to read James Joyce, right? So it's like this, you know, masculine buildings roman novel, right? I'm very interested in it. And I couldn't be bothered. You know, it felt like, a, it felt like an impediment to learning more about teaching. And not to say that I don't love literature and still love reading, but... Um, I, I suddenly felt like I had this very important work to do. And if I wasn't reading for modern theories of writing, I kind of felt like maybe I was wasting my time, you know? And that's, I think that's when I really knew that I had discovered a, a new route, right? Or a new path. It wasn't a completely different, it wasn't like a career change. It was just sort of the, oh, okay, I like teaching, which, you know, surprise. And that there's this political angle to teaching that I hadn't really been aware of. Yeah, that's when it, that's when I think it happened. When did you decide to go for the PhD, and what led you to the program that you completed? Yeah, so what led me to that to make that decision was, you know, being in the teaching assistant program kind of puts you in this hybrid identity group, right? Where on one hand you were a student, and on the other hand you were a colleague, right? And I was talking to a lot of the my professors <clears throat> at New Paltz especially in my senior year when I was writing my thesis and starting to realize like, okay, what am I going to do after this? Right. You know, I'm very much interested in, in learning more, especially because, you know, I, I had a great experience at SUNY New Paltz. I absolutely did. And it was a wonderful program and the teaching assistantship program, you know, uh, forged the life that I have today, but it was a literature program, you know, and, uh, I was actually starting to realize that the composition piece was very interested, really very interesting to me. And I read a lot about different types of graduate programs. And it really seemed to me that what I was mostly kind of interested in was sort of the politics of access, right? So the politics of access 
because in a lot of ways, that's what a first year writing course functions as, right? I mean, Mina Shaughnessy has those great articles about that, right? Sort of like these gatekeeper mythologies of first year writing. It's like, on the one hand, it can be this soft landing place for high school graduates or people returning to school or veterans or whoever is coming back to college and be a really kind of nice transition space. Or it can be like, you know, somebody pulled the bridge up over the moat and you're not allowed in, right? So I really got interested in first year writing as sort of this symbolic space, right? Was it a place that allowed outsiders in or was it a place that kept outsiders out, right? You know, and that's, I think, what really started to get interesting for me. And what led me to Teachers College uh, at Columbia was, you know, just its sort of reputation for political activity, right? You know, uh, Ernest Morell was teaching there when I started, um, who really was sort of the reason that that I applied there. But very quickly, I began working with Bob Fecho. And, you know, between the two of them was kind of able to engage some of the more involved questions of access, equity, and politics in um, education, especially writing studies. So yeah, I would say that that's what, what drew me to Teachers College. Your dissertation, which I'm going to read the title, okay? Yeah. Your dissertation is entitled Policy Literacy and Academic Remediation, Fields of Power at the Community College. It sounds like a fascinating dissertation with a unique perspective on financial aid. What exactly is that dissertation project about? Yeah, so that that project was born out of my own experiences first, which was sort really? of, yeah, being a sort of uh, coming from a background without the financial resources to really attend college, having to sort of navigate the financial aid system, right? So I was really curious about how colleges were, you know, sort of accepting students, especially community colleges, right? Accepting uh, all students, open access, right? Open, open admissions, but really kind of having these internal hurdles that were um, really making the experiences quite problematic. So it was sort of like you had access to the building, but not really to the institution, right? So that's something that I was very interested in was sort of like, yeah, you can come, but you have to fill out this complicated FAFSA application. You know, you need to have a social security number. Uh, you need to have, you know, all of these sort of complicated political hurdles that you have to maneuver your way through. So what I was interested in um, in that study was very specific. And this is a much larger conversation, which I'd be happy to get into. But the very specific question that I was interested in was what role does first year writing play in this? Right. So uh, what, you know, uh, first year writing instructors um have inherently dialogical relationships with their students, right? You know, you're asking them to write about themselves. You may be asking them to write about their lives. It's not uncommon practice to ask someone, you know, what, why did they come to college? So what I started to realize was that a lot of uh, first-year writing instructors were falling into this informal role of policy counselor, <laughs> financial aid counselor, right? You know, these sort of, uh, mm -hmm. and I'm sure... Many people have had these experiences where these student, I mean, something as simple as a student coming up to you and saying, you know, where do I pay my bill? Right. right. Or, or uh, you know, how do I drop a class? Right. And what I started to realize was that when this happened amongst developmental populations, more often than not, they were asking adjuncts and adjuncts, which you put it so well, are running this circuit 
don't have a lot of institutional clout, right? They don't know a lot of people. They don't have offices many times. If they do, it's a shared office. They don't know everybody, right? They're not there eight hours a day. They teach their class and then they're on the road to their next class, right? So it started to be clear to me that what you had was students who had a lot of needs, right? They didn't know the rules of the game at the college. Uh, asking instructors who disproportionately taught developmental courses, right? Just developmental writing courses disproportionately taught by adjuncts who didn't really know how to answer those questions. So you had these sort of these two parallel problems, right? Uh, and they were both, and this is where that term policy literacy comes in, was that the students didn't really know the difference between, you know, a subsidized and an unsubsidized loan or a parents plus loan and, you know, all those sorts of all that kind of language. And the instructors, the adjunct instructors didn't really understand the institutional literacy. They didn't know their college's own financial aid policies. They may not know specific dates. So what you had was, you know, a school that is bringing students in open door, open admissions policy. But there's all of these internal hurdles right? That could be sort of cooling them out, right? And kind of cutting them off before they get there, can spread their wings really. So so that's how that project emerged. And um, the fields of power bit was that I really kind of started to think about this through, you know, Bordeaux's work, right? That this was cultural capital, this was social capital, right? That the degree from any of these students was an embodied capital. And really what, you know, what students were doing is they were suffering because of a lack of cultural capital, right? They didn't have parents who went to college, perhaps, and social capital, right? They didn't have the networks within the universities and systems, and neither did the instructors. So it became this very kind of interesting problem, that's the right word, Uh, interesting circumstance, you know, but interesting thing, right? So, So yeah, that's how that came about. Just on a personal note, Greg, that 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 project sounds super fascinating to me, and, and the intersections of some of the work that I do with yeah. with policy. I'm I don't want to say policy literacy, but yeah, that's that's essentially essentially what some of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. That sounds super cool, man. I, yeah. I hope to learn more from you about that. Likewise. Um, Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. 
If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. that we are going to be able to uh, get some share some knowledge and make some new knowledge with you is through the publication of your new book mm-hmm. and that book is titled meaning making in the carceral space fairy and dialogue and existential becoming in the prison classroom yeah uh, i think now is the perfect time to transition to this conversation about the work that you do in prisons and i do want uh, listeners and you really, Greg, to know that that I'm excited about this part of our conversation to mm-hmm. learn more from you. And this is one of the, the things I've been looking forward to. So sure. perhaps we might first talk a little bit about. Uh, well, actually, I'm going to just let you take the reins, Greg. Uh, how do you want to approach it? Uh, yeah, yeah. So the first thing I like to say is it's uh, that's just a chapter in a book. Right. So that's just uh, that's just my chapter. So, um, yeah, so that that work, you know, the work in in carceral pedagogy is sort of this logical um, evolution sort of out of this question of politics of access. Right. Like, you know, as I was preparing for this um, talk today, I kind of scrawled some notes down in my notebook here and I kind of just made this sort of flow chart. Like, how did I get to where I am from where I started? Right. Like, how am I going to create a narrative here? And, you know. It started with this sort of interest in English and then writing and then comp and then DevEd, right? And I want to be very clear about something is that I don't link developmental education and carceral education, right? I don't want to say that, that those are linked. But what I was linked, the, where the link is, is in this question of who has access to higher education, right? And that's where the carceral pedagogy came into play. So I, I started that in 2004. 2015 is when that project began. And that started not as a writing project, not as a research project, but it started as an as a educational project. I was, I was creating a program. So um, with a colleague at St. Joseph's College, we, we uh, went to the Inside Out Training Institute in Pennsylvania at Temple University. And we were trained in a maximum security prison for about a week. Uh, to kind of learn the sort of pedagogy of this program. And that that work is very much informed by the work of Frere, right? Sort of critical pedagogy, which is which is something that I, I want to talk about because I, 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 I'm not entirely of the mind that critical pedagogy belongs in carceral education. And I, I could talk more about that, but that's one of the questions that I wrestle with in the chapter, having done this work. Well, as someone who doesn't know anything about carceral education, yeah. what what are you wrestling with there? Well, I mean, I think the I think the fundamental question about carceral education or education in jails and prisons is an ethical question, right? And it is about why are you there and what is the impact of the work that you're doing there on your students, right? So, you know, I think maybe one way to think about it, Bree. Uh, 
very simply is, is there any way that the work that you do in the context of a jail or prison could have a negative impact on your students? Right. So you can imagine a circumstance in which liberatory practices might not be the best route. Right. So if okay. you're teaching for uh, consciousness and critical consciousness and agitating your students, which is common practice in a composition class. Sure. Right. There are ethical ramifications to consider in the context of a jail or a prison. Right. You know, there's this sort of one of the things that I write about a little bit, and I am not the first person to write about this. Don't you know, I don't want that to be mistaken, is that what do you do if you're liberating the mind and the body is incarcerated? Right. This kind of what are you doing when you do that? Right. Is uh, is that a good thing? Is that an ethical thing? Who decides whether that's a good or an ethical thing? Those sorts of questions. So very kind of theoretical questions, I think, emerge out of the carceral pedagogy discussion about what are you doing and why are you doing it? It's not quite as cut and dry as maybe teaching writing in, in a college classroom. So, so, so that's what the chapter emerged out of. But, but before the chapter even became even the beginning of an idea, I had to do this work. Right. right. So I had I had taught in these contexts for about four years before before even putting pen to paper about any of this. And the the chapter came out of my own questions, right, about sort of these ethical questions, you know, but again, before that, you know, kind of going back to, to, to design in the program, I mean, that in of itself is something that that is its own sort of world, right, facilitating right. the relationship between a jail and a college, proposing to the sheriff, uh, proposing to your curriculum review board, you know, all these kinds of partnerships. Um, that's the type of work that I had been doing early on. So I didn't have a lot of time to think about these sort of, you know, pedagogical questions, right? Trying to get the program rolling. And once it was rolling and I was in the classroom and I was working with a mixed group of students, right? So I was bringing students from the college with me into the jail. So it was a 50-50 ratio, right? So me, a colleague, and then half what we called inside students and half what we called outside students who came with us to the jail. And, you know, observing those classes, teaching those classes, journaling about those classes, thinking about those classes is where the book project started to kind of emerge. And, you know, I was being someone who came from sort of a Friarian background, right? I became very curious about the role that Freire had in in this type of work, right? Because I had always seen Freire very closely linked to carceral pedagogy, but I wondered about the potential for misinterpretation, right? Especially for novice instructors who might have sort of this savior complex, right? Sort of liberating the minds of the students. And, you know, I, I really worried about sort of the ramifications of that. And I'll, let me be clear, I still don't have answers, right? You know, and, and one of the things that uh, I'm writing about in my current manuscript is the the ongoing nature of this work, that it's evolving, that it is, you know, I think about it like a Rubik's cube. Every time you turn it one way, the pattern looks very different, right? And it just keeps evolving and changing. So in that sense, the work is very much ongoing. And like I said, there's a, a lot of people who have written about this and who are still writing about this. And everything I read, you know, shifts the way I think about it a little bit. So it's, it's, it's an, an important ongoing project. What are some of the things that I'm asking this question for myself, mm -hmm. realistically, but what are some of the things 
that listeners that don't know anything about carceral education, what are some of the things that you might teach us or that we might want to take away from this conversation? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if I can teach you anything, right? Let me start with that. But I think, but what I think I would like people to take away from it is some questions, right? So one of the questions, like very basic kind of boots on the ground questions, right? If you offer a course in a jail, are the students who are incarcerated in your class, do they get credit, right? That's one thing to really think about. Are they now students at your college? And if not, what are the implications of that, right? And if you pile on top of that in outside students coming into the jail, then you have a power dynamic, right? Then you have some students who are getting credit and some students who aren't getting credit. And it's not as simple as some students auditing the class, right? So those are the kinds of questions that I ask people to consider, right? And, and again, I'm not the only one asking these questions, right? And and I'm not, I sure don't have an answer, right? And I think it changes depending on circumstance, but, you know, those sorts of questions, right? So sort of like if, if so, one group is getting credit and one group is not getting credit, right? What are the differences and implications between teaching a course in a jail, right, where many people are either pre-sentence or serving sentences less than 365 days, and a prison where most people are serving out time that has been allotted to them, and they're there for longer stretches of time, right? So there's differences in that approach, right? You're going to have a more more turnover in a jail classroom because the population is constantly changing, but you're also going to have a lot of people that are going to be re-entering society relatively quickly. And with a prison, you have the exact opposite, right? You're going to have more stability, but people serving longer sentences, right? So if you're in a jail, you might not even have students for the duration of your semester, right? And what are the implications of having a cycling group of inside students and a stable group of outside students, right? So these very kind of, uh, I guess I guess if I could tell you or anything, it would be ask a lot of questions, right? And be mm. careful about those questions. You know, that's, that's what the work is. You know, I'm not really making any arguments here. I guess what my work is about sort of opening up the conversation for people that might be interested in pursuing some of this work, right, or getting involved with some of this work is, you know, there's it's a lot to think about. It's not as simple as, you know, sign me up. You know, there's uh, there's a lot a lot of moving parts, um, as there is in all teaching, right, as there is in all teaching. Sure. Sure. But I think it's fair to say that the stakes are higher in the context of a jail or a prison. So hope that answers your question. Yeah, I think so. And I think that it answered my question and gave us a lot to think about going forward, especially for folks who don't know a lot about carceral education. You Well, you mentioned complexity, high stakes. One thing that kind of one word that I kept thinking about was nuance, right? Mm-hmm. There, yeah. there has to be a certain nuance to this work. And, 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 and for me, I immediately thought, what's the personal motivating factor like what sent greg bruno on this path like on this trajectory with your work that's a loaded question though but i wonder if you may have any any answer you know for me it's 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 not a particularly romantic answer right but for me it was just sort of that i understood that there were certain groups that were being excluded from college and 
one of those groups was people who were in jails and prisons, right? And I got very involved in the conversation about access to Pell Grants, right? And the Second Chance Pell Grant, you know, initiative and those sorts of things. So so that sort of work, right? So for me, it, it came from the policy side that I was first and foremost interested mm-hmm. in in access to education. One of the groups that is often accesses withheld from is this exact group, right? So, so that was how I kind of got into it. Um, but you're spot on when you talk about the nuance, right? I mean, uh, the manuscript that I'm, you know, working with right now, it's that word pops up. I have to edit it out because it comes up so often, right? Is that this is nuanced, right? And it, it changes, right? It changes with every political pen stroke, Right. You know, so there's so many. And again, as it does with all education, especially public education. But but yeah, it's it's evolving and ongoing and fluid and dynamic and nuanced and all of those, you know, icky words that make it hard for us to pin down an answer to. So what's your musical background? Do you play instruments, write music? Are you a vocalist? Uh, no, all I am not. Above? <laughs> I am not a vocalist, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I play guitar and, you know, I, I played guitar in, you know, metal bands and things like that when I was younger and, you know, still, still, you know, still do not with bands so much anymore, but, uh, but yeah, I've been playing guitar for a long time and, you know, I, I've had this idea to kind of think about the relationship between like self-taught musicians and self-taught writers, because there's something bizarre about the way that we sort of uh lionize self-taught musicians right so you know mm-hmm. it, and, and i'm not sure that we have quite that relationship with writers right we think about you know we're always curious about the credentials of a writer whereas you know if, if you're in a you know a punk rock band or something and you're a graduate from berkeley there goes your street cred right it's almost the exact opposite <laughs> right so 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 there's something interesting about that but yeah i mean uh, I love to play. I still play, you know, I've got a couple of guitars in the room next door and, you know, um, no room next door, the room right there. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great hobby. And what do you have on your plate for the fall semester? So for the fall semester, I, so the, the, the chapter that you asked about, uh, I, I'm now developing into its, its own book. So I just recently worked out a uh, advanced contract on that. So I actually have, yeah, yeah. So that was what I'll be doing all summer and all fall. You know, I, I'm hoping to have a manuscript draft by February, you know, about a year from now. So um, that's looking possible right now, but it's a lot of 4 a.m. writing, you know, before going to teach my classes. But but it's moving along. So uh, in addition to that, I'll be teaching a couple of courses at Kingsborough. I'm supposed to be teaching a course at a correctional facility that semester. But given what's going on with global pandemic, I, I don't imagine that will be happening. And I, I would assume that my fall classes will be remote. So is there anything else you want to add before I let you off to go enjoy the rest of your afternoon? No, I think that's it. I mean, I, I, I want to say I've listened to a couple of these podcasts and I think you're doing some great work here. It's really, it's really, really great for kind of encouraging conversation. I've been listening to these on my runs and, you know, they're, well, when I was still taking runs, but, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's really great stuff. So thank you for doing it. Hey, I appreciate the kind words and 
I listen to this podcast when I run, which is not yeah. egotistical, but it's like killing two birds with one stone. It I can is. listen to it before I publish it and exercise. So yes. that's good to know. <laughs> yep. Yep. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks, Charles. Great talking to you. thank Dr. Bruno for joining me on this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. His work is so timely, so important to how we reconceive of how and with who knowledge is made and shared. It's the work we truly need if we are going to reimagine our inequitable systems. As the Big Rhetorical Podcast continues Season 3, we want to talk to you. If you have a book, a project, an interesting topic to talk about, reach out to us as we are now booking guests into Season 4 and Season 5. If you're about to hit the job market or go up for tenure, perhaps you might join us as a part of our Emerging Scholar series. The Big Rhetorical Podcast also promotes and attends conferences and symposia. If you want to promote your event, reach out. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at The Big Red. Leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Mm-hmm.